Hello and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. My guest today is someone that I've admired for a very long time. He's an incredible full-stack developer whose motto is, if you can sell it, I can build it. He's co-founded multiple companies, including Flowactive, Jowl, and Rolio, in addition to holding top engineering roles at Analytic, Axgen, and now Saml. Please welcome Devin Bernard. Devin, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, man. So I always like to start these off by asking how you were first exposed to computer science and why you decided to pursue it as a career. Sure. So I guess I, I knew about software just from growing up of seeing computers and things. But I guess the first thing I could ever remember wanting was being a nuclear physicist and a mathematician from the age of six. I think what drew me into computer science when I was in middle school, uh, my grandmother had a computer that had got some viruses and she said, okay, uh, I'm going to throw it away unless you can fix it and then you can keep it. So I was luckily able to fix it, just like restore to factory default. And uh, it's actually easier than I would have thought. And um, from there was able to, you know, that first week I started programming like silly little 2D video games on like XNA studios and then you know, started doing web development and got into consulting even you know the first year of programming. Wow, wow. And I heard at one point when uh, you were in college that in addition to taking classes, you were working for four startups at one time? So I don't know about four startups. I, I, so I was interning at Google and Microsoft while also like being the co-founder of two different startups. Well, that's uh, in some respects even more impressive. So I just have a one-word question: How? Yeah, um, very weird. I was luckily able to pull it off. Only one place required my physical presence. So apparently, I applied to Google first, and they took a very long time to respond. But then had like a, a one-day interview, like intense on-site with Microsoft. They gave me an offer. Okay, accept it. And then Google came back and was like, hey, like, we, we give you an offer. And I don't want to say no to Google because, you know, early college. So I thought, is there any way I can make this, you know, fly? Talking with managers and stuff, I found a way to work on site 
for Microsoft in Cambridge, Mass. And then I would work remotely uh, for Google. And so essentially how it would work was I would nine to five, you know, do your regular hours at the Cambridge office. And then after I was luckily that I was on the East Coast, then I could line up up some of my meetings to do calls with people on the West Coast. And I'd say fortunately, but also unfortunately at that time, one of the the businesses, Rolio, we were at uh, Accelerprise, which is uh, an accelerator in D.C., so unfortunately, I couldn't be there in person for that. I'm sure that would have been a phenomenal experience. Getting into it, I was concerned that maybe I took on too much. But luckily, at the end, you get return offers, both businesses booming, more customers, uh, funding. It all seemed to, I guess, worked out, which was a pleasant surprise. <laughs> wow, that's a truly crazy story, especially uh, with the addition of having to run those t- startups as well as uh, do all the normal intern work at two large companies. (laughs) But going back a little bit to when you were first learning, you came from, as I understand, a pretty small town in New Hampshire, was it? Uh, Yeah, very, very small town, New Hampshire. So how did, did your high school have any education for computer science or were you entirely self-taught then? Uh, So they they didn't have any computer programs. So I'll clarify, um, for high schoolers, they had one class where they taught you how to use PowerPoint and Excel. <laughs> I mean, that's about the closest to computers that they got. We had like a a library that had a few computers at it, but they in no way taught programming. I think realistically speaking, it was all just from scratch where I had goals of, okay, I want to make a 2D video game, even if it's crappy. I actually thought they're pretty okay, <laughs> <laughs> but not great. And so I, you know, just, Google around, you stacked Overflow, which was an incredible resource at the time. And I think that if anything, my goal was more of, hey, here's 10 different things I would like to build. And whatever things I have to figure out to get there, cool, fine. That's just part of the cost of you know doing it. So I think I approached it more of how do I build a specific thing versus here's the things I want to learn. Interesting. Do you still recommend that approach or is that what you ascribe to in your current self-learning? I'd say it probably depends on the kind of person and on the type of knowledge you're looking to acquire. So at least for something like programming, I think that it is good to have a tangible result of something that you can show off. But also, I, I feel like there are a lot of people that when they're trying to get into computer science, they will take a bunch of online courses and they don't really like, or maybe even read a bunch of textbooks and nothing really comes of it. And then they give up. And I feel having a project, even if it's not, you know, super technically interesting or complicated, as long as it's something that you feel you care at least a little bit about, that gives you a motivation to keep going because you would like to see this thing exist. Um, whether or not you're the only person in the world that uses it, fine. Um, but it's just, you know, fun to, to be able to build things uh, for some people. Yeah, and something that I definitely didn't realize early on, I pretty much did that exact path of trying to go for all the courses first, and then then I'll have the knowledge to do things. But starting by doing things is definitely important. And you learn that the there is a specific skill in shipping and finishing things in and of itself. Have you ever gone back to look at some of the games that you had made? Oh, yeah, they are pretty bad. I I won't mention the links, but I did publish about half of them. So half of the games I made were for Windows. 
you know, I, I never really had a place to, I guess, publish them. So I just shared the, the Windows executable with, with friends. Some, however, I built for for online and Flash players. So those, unfortunately, made their way to the internet. Um, <laughs> I got a good amount of feedback. Uh, a lot of people, you know, say, like, this game is stupid. You stink stuff like that. <laughs> but some people were, were, were positive. Either way, they're very basic. Eventually, after doing 2D games, I tried to do 3D. I'm like, whoa, this is way too complicated. And then I, I fell into websites and I haven't, haven't looked back since. <laughs> and you mentioned before that you started consulting within a year of first starting to program. Yeah. Where did you get that idea from? That doesn't seem like uh, a pretty uh, any normal thing to do. Yeah. So I guess where I was coming from the mentality of in a small town, don't really have a lot of money, like family needs, you know, money to pay the bills. Uh, So what is something that I can do that would help pay the bills? And I did a whole bunch of weird things growing up, all sorts of small businesses or very small ways to make incremental like here's a few hundred dollars here a few thousand dollars here and i said okay well i have made a few websites one of my passion projects was hey facebook is a website why don't i just make facebook and see how hard that would be so i took a week week and a half i made like all the features of facebook like messaging friends profiles all that stuff and i was like okay that's not that bad and, you know, of course, it's all, you know, a lot more complicated now. But I thought, is there a way I can use this programming to, to, I guess, make money? And there happened to be a lot of freelancing sites at the time, some of which no longer exist. I mean, I was able to use those websites, make a good amount of money to help pay the bills, which is great. And from that, other agencies and more established organizations or like local or local businesses or other companies will also then reach out and say, hey, I saw some other stuff that you did. You know, can you help us with something? Yeah, it's paradoxical in some ways that coming from a small town will actually encourage you to start businesses. I know for me, I'm currently in my my hometown as well, and where we have less than 2,000 people, and the only options for making money are doing landscaping work or working at the local diner. And so in not wanting to have to do either of those options, I turned to not computer science, but to electrical engineering to try and make some things that I could sell in high school. But where do you, was there like a, a, some books that you had read or was it in your family that entrepreneurship, starting your own things was the thing to do? I'm always interested in how people f- first start their journey into that. My family doesn't have much ties to entrepreneurship. I think my uh, great-grandfather always did a very bunch of random things to make money. I never really saw much of him. My father, and now he, he runs a construction business, but growing up, he was a daredevil. And he was like the, the top athlete in uh, skydiving or snowboarding or motocross. Wow. And like he's like actually a professional athlete uh, in all those things wow. at different years. So he's just more of a, a adrenaline junkie is a self-described term he uses. <laughs> and so I think from entrepreneurship, I guess for me... I never really thought about money in, I guess, the early days. I just thought of, well, here's the thing that would be cool and I would like to build. And I guess I, one, I just wanted to see a thing built that could maybe help solve someone's problem. 
but also I, I thought that there is some curiosity of, hey, I'm sure I will learn things building this. You know, that's worth something. So I would I would do a bunch of that. And I never really, maybe here and there throughout uh, high school, I would have did software things for making money. But yeah, I guess I'm mostly just a bunch of weird small businesses of, of out of necessity. It's more of, hey, like what I need to get by not to really get rich or anything. And then in college, obviously, that ramped up where you started multiple companies or co-founded them. What what was that? Can you describe that first experience of how you got the idea, how you approached validating it, or if you even, if you even did that, or what mistakes that you made? So I think I, I fell into startups in two different kinds of ways. So the first would be, I thought of, hey, here's a problem I'd like to solve. And I, you know, talk to a bunch of people and try and get sales before building the thing. And the other way, uh, I thought, if anything, is a meta business strategy where I thought, hey, there's an entrepreneurship center at our university. There's probably a lot of smart business people there. Why don't I just walk into the office and somehow convince them, hey, if any of you need something built, I can help you build it. And eventually I became like a de facto point of contact where anyone in the, the entrepreneurship center is like, hey, like you need some software thing, go talk to Devin. So that, that just kind of, that gave me some inbound opportunities. But as far as your, your point about validating ideas, I, I guess for examples of things that I would uh, try and do, I, I usually was focused in B2B software. So it's just pretty easy to usually get a list of, you know, here's a few thousand people that you can call. So you find some web directory of the people that were, you know, a potential customer. If you can get their phone number, great. Otherwise, get their email, but just keep calling. And I think if you call 500 people and 30 people, you know, give you some some serious consideration and, you know, you land five or 10 customers, you know, you can then leverage that as initial credibility to then expand to other customers. Yeah, taking that uh, funnel-based approach is, or, and actually working out the math of like, okay, how many people should I contact at this response rate and thereafter conversion rate? You, it, it is quite striking to me, at least, that you have a lot of people who think that entrepreneurship is so risky and having a, a steady job is like the way to go. But when you actually work the math out, you don't actually need that many customers paying that much amount of money. And even if you're trying to hit it really big and you only have, say, a 10% shot of doing so, if you repeat that maybe 10 times over the course of your lifetime, you're bound to hit uh, hit one of them. Yeah, so I would definitely agree that Making a lifestyle business, if you look at the numbers, is pretty easy to just, you know, make a bunch of calls, especially if you're doing, you know, B2B where it's a lot more reliable than, you know, consumers where their interest can uh, spike or drop in demand. But you you won't necessarily get crazy rich. Uh, I think, you know, if if you are trying to get hundreds of millions or billions, you definitely just want to have a few big hits versus 100 medium hits because that doesn't really work. So I think the lifestyle businesses tend to be uh, a lot easier to manufacture in a short time span as an experiment. But I feel like a lot of things holding people back is just, you know, you're, you're afraid to hear no on the phone 200 times in a row. 
So I definitely think that, hey, like early days, you don't have much signal. Maybe you're the only person that thinks it seems okay. And getting rejected hundreds and hundreds of times before even hearing the slightest amount of, oh, that's cool. Or like, yeah, sure, I want to buy that can be demoralizing. But it's just part of the game. How do you work through that when you have an idea and you're trying to call up some people who might be interested and you get, say, 10 no's in a row? How do you decide that this is something that you should continue trying to do? Yeah, so... I believe that depends on the type of thing you're building. So if you are in it just for money, then just remind yourself of the numbers game and say, hey, this is part of how funnels work. If, If anything, just start off the process saying, I'm going to make 300 phone calls and then I will reevaluate. And that's just a reasonable amount of time to commit. Now, if you are doing it not necessarily because the money, but because you either like care about the problem that you're solving or you think it would be fun to build, then, you know, remind yourself of like, step away from, you know, the numbers and all the other things. Say, why, why are you doing this? And just revisit that core thing that you're, you're looking for in the future. Yeah, I like the uh, distinction between the two and how that leads to differing strategies for that. And you said that you normally try to stick to B2B because it does tend to be uh, their incentives are more clear, at least. But you recently did dip your toes into the B2C landscape. Yeah. Can you explain that adventure? Yeah. Right after COVID hit, a game called Animal Crossing was released by Nintendo. And my girlfriend, she was, you know, had that game waitlisted for like a year. And when it came out, you know, she was playing all the time. She was on a lot of subreddits trying to like trade with other people and you know we're, we're talking about it back and forth and she kept going like man these these reddit is like way too inefficient i spend hours and it doesn't make any sense you know she ended up you know having say there has to be a way that we can do this better so you know we talk about different kinds of features and ways that we could you know replace that existing communication infrastructure of reddit or facebook group to have animal crossing be a more fun enjoyable experience you know, we, we set out to say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll build something. We'll see what happens. And it was my first time making a mobile app from like a React JS. So like we cross compiled with Capacitor and built it in three days, put it in the app store, just put like a single post on Reddit, got 50,000 users overnight. Wow. Yeah, it blew <laughs> up uh, very fast. And, you know, soon after that hit half a million. Wow. And uh, if anything, like, I, I don't want to say I was kind of scared, but as soon as we like my, my first mentality of it was, okay, there's going to be this three day hackathon, build it, ship it. And then, you know, whatever happens, happens fine. It was just more of a learning experience, if anything. And as soon as I had 50,000 people using it, like overnight, I was, I, I felt bad. Like they have all these extra things and features and better UX that they want. And I, and I really don't want to let them down. So I'm like, crap, it became a full-time job by accident. um so then yeah there's a a whole bunch of back and forth of the different problems that we needed to work together and solve to to have people be happy yeah it's really funny because we had chatted uh, a few months ago and you mentioned that you were doing this project and funnily enough one of my coworkers actually plays animal crossing quite a bit and i told him about this and he was like oh yeah that's a really great idea there's one site that i currently use 
And it was actually the your app that he was using. Yeah. So it wow, it's really amazing that you that it got so much traction so quickly. Were there from all that inbound traffic? I mean, how was the service holding up? Were there problems in terms of the the backend scaling or no? So overall the server, you know, when you do things on AWS, it's pretty easy to scale. I think there was probably one week where we had some like unavailability issues and it was a little weird to debug. So I thought it was a problem with our like actual like server running the backend, but apparently it was our database didn't have enough threads. So it was like we had a good backend server, but our database was too small. So all of our like server requests would keep timing out. And eventually, like I, I had to go through and debug the whole chain, and then I figured out, oh, okay, it was because all the queries to the database were being held so long that then the request actually failed, upsized the database, and then from that, you know, all the other problems were solved. But yeah, the the scaling side on the the server was actually pretty pretty straightforward. I think if anything, there's a lot of weird DevOps challenges of maintaining different versions between like what the currently people are using and the backwards compatibility of when you ship an update for iOS and Android. But the, the scaling was luckily straightforward, I think, because we had AWS. Like you said, one of the great things about these cloud infrastructures is that you can just build things once and then yeah, scale it vertically or horizontally as you need to. But at least in my experience, uh, being a less experienced engineer, uh, it seems like very often it's hard to understand and I guess conceptualize the scaling problems that you'll run into while you're building it. And thus later on, when you get more, when you try to scale it, you end up breaking a lot of things. Is And you having built this in a very short amount of time, in just three days, it's very impressive that you were able to scale it relatively easily with some bugs along the way, of course. But when you're approaching a project like that at the start, what are all the I suppose, what are the like the first things that you think about in terms of how to make a maintainable system so that that scales well stuff like that so when i think of when i start a project and i try and think what i should be first concerned with you know my first concern is Features, second concern, features. <laughs> but as far as like uh, maintainability, I think I try to have things. I don't necessarily think about scale directly, but I try to think of for any interaction between two systems, how do I just make that as small and modular as possible? You know, if I can make it modular, then I can, you know, do horizontal. I can, you know, have as many servers as I want, fine. And if I have these, each interaction be as efficient and least like memory or intensive as far as having a, a small payload of data, then okay, like by definition, that's probably the best that I can do at the time. So at that point, if I do both of those things, the the only way I can improve is either be smarter and somehow find a way to make it more efficient or just, you know, put an extra server on. And uh, for the most part, that seems to, to get by. 
So do you find that when you're designing it or writing out the scaffolding for this, do you find yourself in your head asking, how can I make this more modular? How can I make these two connections more efficient? Or is it something that just you type out without uh, consciously considering it because of all your experience? So I believe that I I would try and intentionally design it such that I think um, whenever I, I I guess if I had to roll back top down, how I, I would think about it is, okay, we have some feature which has an experience. What is the absolute minimum amount of information like that a digital interface needs to provide to allow that interaction? And then I figure out, for that minimal amount of information, how should it be broken down? Like, what is the latest point that I can request that information and receive it? Because I don't need it all at once because, you know, that, that could be redundant or something might change. So it's kind of like a form of lazy loading of, okay, what is the latest that I can possibly get it and make it as only the, the critical information that I need? Now, I, I usually start with that, which tends to usually work. And then I would say there are certain times where that design philosophy might become a problem where if you repetitively need a bunch of different information, then you might think of some other form of bundling that could be useful. But for most cases that the on a need to know basis and as late as you can. Now, of course, if you want to have a, a pretty experience, of course, in the background, you can asynchronously load it earlier. But um, keeping in mind that, you know, to, you know, the bare minimum of what you need, that, that makes it more simple. Do you, have you ever studied or do you practice any of the formal design methodologies like uh, domain-driven design or some parts of XP? So I've gone like back and forth from different teams that I worked on that adopt different policies. And I think really like any of them can be fine. I think that it really devolves down to what is the personality of like the, the team that is implementing these things and how they like to operate. Because if anything, I think having engineers that are trying to be conscientious and trying to do the right thing and are highly motivated will tend to yield better, more stable results with some level of management versus trying to force one person with a personality to follow, follow an engineering guideline that just really doesn't correlate with how they like to work. So then they're demotivated. And, you know, that that's a lot harder of a problem to solve. Yeah, that's a really interesting point about how it should be aligned with with the people on your development team. But for your, when you're doing your own personal projects is, are those, do you, you use those methods yourself or you take ideas from that and then unconsciously use them? Yeah, so I guess I, I probably have a different process for when I work on a thing solo or with a small group of friends versus I'm managing an engineering team. You know, because I, I, I like to think of if you are running an engineering team, every time your headcount doubles, probably all your rules change. You know, it is good to try and be flexible on that. Because I think that if someone is so fixed on their ideology that they don't bend it to fit the context that they're working in, then, you know, there, there's going to be some amount of inefficiency there. 
So I think it's, you know, most importantly to be fluid and open in consideration. So I think, yeah, pulling parts from multiple different things. That said, sometimes a, a partial compromise can lead to inefficiency. So if you say, I take half of part A and half of part B, that could actually just be worse than going with either A or B. So that is also a thing to keep in mind. So when you're, I guess, go stepping back for a little bit outside of this pretty nitty gritty stuff. In general, what would you, what's like, what makes for an effective engineer in your view? And how do you approach striving to achieve that? I guess there's a lot of different things that could make someone a good engineer versus a great engineer. I, I believe usually the biggest signal that I would look for, and some people make a joke of it, but um, when you write software, you create bugs. And you know, the goal is to minimize that. <laughs> but also create as many features as you can. So I think if anything, the, the two things I'd probably look out for is like, of course, motivation, perseverance, that, that applies to most roles. But I think specifically... For engineers, I think the ability to debug something as effectively as possible is probably a thing that I would I would critically look for. Just because, one, if you can solve any like if any any other engineer on the team has a, a bug and you can without context jump in and help solve it ten times faster with them, like you're a multiplier for the effectiveness of your whole team, which is great. But also, I believe. In order to jump in and actually debug and figure out what the cause of a problem is and then figure out a solution, implement that solution fast, that requires you to be able to compartmentalize all these different parts of the stack and then see how things connect together and interpret those as they're currently implemented, but also figure out ways to change it without causing too much friction. And I believe that when people are that fast to being able to debug, they can also use that same mindset to implement a new thing in a non-cumbersome way that would then not have too many externalities. Yeah, the debugging thing is really amazing to me when you do encounter someone who knows their entire stack so well that you have a customer coming to you saying, this is the this is what we see on the UI, and then immediately they can they say, oh, it's probably this or this or this, and the way that we can check it is just by looking at this log and confirming this. And ten minutes later, they've solved the entire thing and have a, a Jira ticket uh, for someone to work on next week. So I, I definitely agree that that's a really amazing skill. But it does seem like both debugging and the being able to implement things quickly that are later maintainable. They're very, uh, some people like to use the term tacit knowledge, where it's, you can't, it's hard for someone to enumerate exactly what they're thinking when they reach solutions like that. So how would you, like, are there shortcuts to be able to learn it faster? Or is it just something that does have to come from lots and lots of experience? So I think part of it is, probably a framework for thinking that could be useful. And the second is the design of your environment. So I would say 
you know, there's some of the trade-offs people say about functional programming versus object-oriented. But, you know, regardless of, you know, either of those methodologies, if you treat your entire software stack as a series of operations in a network and they all have like inputs and outputs, then if you have better knowledge of how these things flow into each other, you could know where one thing could break. So if I have a function that does five things versus one thing, you know, okay, well, now there's a whole bunch of things that could be affected by that one place. But uh, so I feel having that information all like broken down into smaller pieces makes it easier to locate something and see how one thing might affect another. Because as things are smaller, and it is easier to figure out externalities, because you know, well, here is by definition, the things that it talks to or communicates with. So those are the only things that could, you know, be affected and you just follow those lines. Yeah. And then for building out those features quickly with as few bugs as possible, and this is a quite hard thing to do, especially uh, if you're new to a, a code base or the code base itself is not exactly perfect. How would you approach... Like when you first have an existing code base and someone says, okay, these are, this is what I want you to build on it. How do you, what's the, what are the first things that you think about in terms of the trade-off between refactoring some of what's already done and to enable capability later or getting it done quickly? I feel a lot of people have this common opinion that an existing large code base is somehow hard to iterate on. And I don't believe I actually agree with that. There have been plenty of companies, like for instance, Microsoft, where huge code base, you know, I can jump in and within a week have a feature implemented that, you know, jives with all the other things that they have running. And I, I feel that for the people that have a hard time jumping into an existing large code base, I believe that comes from not being comfortable with separating where different parts of functionality come from. If you already have an idea of, okay, this is a front end thing or back end thing, then, okay, well, ideally, if those two you know, systems are completely separate, that's half the code base that you can ignore. Now you say, okay, you know, was it talking with the database or was it, you know, just some, you know, API or third party thing, then, you know, okay, this is a part that I can check. And I think that when you're trying to add on to an existing code base and not just fix things, but actually build new stuff, I, I believe that when you look at your feature and you break it down specifically into, I have, you know, maybe this client side interaction, which is this specific function, which, you know, interacts with these three other components and, that's all you really need to cover. So just make sure that you design the small piece in isolation of, hey, what you need to work. And then you, you know, make sure you have the appropriate connections to the three things it needs to talk with. And, you know, I think that when you're very explicit and you actually determine what the explicit function and what the connections are before even writing a line of code, you are more, I guess, able to build it once versus 
you know, you just go in and try and build something and then you keep every other day discovering some other mm-hmm. dependency or connection that is involved. And that might involve a complete refactor because maybe one of your connections has some sort of implementation detail that would be impossible with the design pattern that you previously chose. If you first decide before I write a line of code, I want to see like, what does this connect with? And, you know, what are the hard requirements of each of those things? And, you know, the MVP of the actual like functionality of the feature. And once you have that in mind, then, okay, like by definition, your scope won't change um, if your intuition or interpretation was correct. And then, you know, it seems a lot easier because then you're just writing code instead of thinking of how to do something. Mm-hmm. And that ties in quite nicely with uh, what you're saying, what you were saying earlier with the, with how you approach a new project, which is mapping out those connections and what's the minimum information that I can reasonably pass between these two things. And you had mentioned earlier in the last answer about potentially keeping in mind the differences between functional and imperative or uh, object-oriented programming. And I know that you're a big JavaScript guy. So where do you fall on on how this has played out recently and where you think that things will be going in the future in terms of the rise of functional yeah. So, I mean, JavaScript's already eating the world. It runs on everything nowadays. Like you can get running on embedded systems, you know, whatever. I feel, or at least in, in my opinion and personal belief, you know, whatever programming language you want to use or syntax that's comfortable with you, fine. Like when you boil away, like when you boil things down past syntax and you think of how certain things interact with each other, everything else is going to be about the same. You just type it and it looks a little bit different. Like not that big of a deal. As far as, you know, when you think of something more fundamental of, oh, you know, functional programming, I am sure, like, I would be curious to see how the mindset of, you know, the top 1% of functional programmers versus the top 1% of object-oriented programmers, like, you know, what is their actual train of thought? I think it might be significantly different. But I don't think that inherently makes one better than the other. I think that as long as, for the most part, we live in a world of plenty for computing resources, unless you're doing some, you know, crazy computational AI thing. Most web services are, are, you know, pretty uh, easy in there. They're very forgiving at the amount of RAM or other compute that you need. So I think that uh, people can get away with that. But yeah, I think that... for the extent that it matters of trying to build a service that can work for tens or hundreds of millions of people, I, I believe that the thing that would lead to a more successful product or a more successful company is making sure that your engineers are working in a way that aligns with their mindset and enables them to be effective over, hey, here's 5% of the time that functional or you know object-oriented is better than the other. Yes, it's uh, something that my tech lead likes to say is that one of the reasons people like functional programming now, or the, one of the reasons for its rise, is because of resume-driven development. Because if you can put on your resume, then uh, that's better for your career. But uh, and it's not necessarily in line with the business use cases, but people still do it. But anyway, you you mentioned again something that came up earlier, which is the how important alignment is when managing engineering teams. I'm curious as to 
if you were coming in fresh as a manager into a new dev team uh, and say that they're, most of them are fresh as well, what would be the first things that you put into place to uh, increase the productivity of the team? Firstly, I just like to understand like what these people's personal motivations are, like why did they accept a job at the company and why are they still working at the company when there are so many other opportunities out there? And when you like figure out that, then you can also figure out how they, you know, trade off different pros and cons of workplace environment. You know, if, if this is someone's first job, then, you know, it's, it's a bit harder to get signal. But I think that if you're willing to uh, have a potentially uncomfortable conversation with somebody, uh, but be vulnerable and honest and candid, you can usually pretty rapidly get down to what they like and what they don't like. And when you do that, you know, across a team, then you can, maybe you can have some wiggle room for like flexibility across each of the members. Like you don't need a rigid policy that applies to everyone. And then you can figure out, you know, of the things that works for these people and with upper management and, you know, making sure you manage upwards to have uh, everyone that you need to report to be happy to, to be, you know, on time and uh, on schedule and have a, a predictable deliverable schedule you can figure out, okay, like here's the baseline rules that we need to actually apply to everyone. And I would say outside of aligning things to people's preference, two things that I think go hand in hand that are very nice uh, is just have a lot of like radical transparency and accountability for people and then, you know, empower someone to, to make decisions. So I believe that if you have 10 people trying to build something, but no one's really in charge, um, like there's a, a lot of stuff that no one wants to do that will never get done, even though no matter how important it is. So it doesn't really, it, to some extent, it, it's better to just pick a random person to just have them be accountable because then they feel they need to take the charge and actually figure out, okay, well, here's the areas that we're falling short. Um, it's like tragedy of the commons. I think having that, that transparency and just, Hey, like I'll, I'll, I'll give you some rope to figure out, you know, what works for you, but just making sure that, for any given thing, whether it's a feature or a project that someone actually owns that end to end and like you empower them and say, Hey, like I'm going to hold you accountable, but like whatever you need, like I'm in service to you, I, I think helps them, you know, succeed. Yeah. The point about ownership, I think is extremely uh, important in, in my limited experience, especially at Amazon. Ownership is one of their core leadership principles, but and I know that a meme is made very frequently of uh, having leadership principles uh, or values at any company, but at Amazon, ownership actually was a, a big part of the culture as well. And you could really see the effect that it had where a team would be in charge of the, from the very start, like ideation, and then talking to the potential customers and then going and then building it and then maintaining it later, even if even if people would swap out or stuff like that. You're, the team itself had a very high ownership of all the features it developed. And it seems like that led to a lot better code. People weren't, they didn't have the mindset of pass this on to QA or the support teams after this. This will, uh, and they'll have to deal with this, whereas uh, I built it, so I should get the credit for it. Yeah. But to switch to a slightly I guess it's not that different, but it seems like these are lessons that are quite, again, it's very hard to 
enumerate a lot of them without the experience or again going back to the possible tacit knowledge definition of this but how do you approach getting better at not just management on the team level but on the person to person level i guess there's a few different states from here if you already have a trusting relationship with a person or you're neutral like okay there's there's a lot of ground for you to work if you have for some reason lost the faith or lost the trust of a reportee or a coworker that can be a lot more complicated so as far as building trust i, I think that it ends up being pretty simple of people just saying hey like here's expectations that we have you know both as a thing that you expect from a person but also what you try and provide make sure you're very explicit and you know have it written down and as communicated in their timelines the the when is important you know if you don't know how and when it's like it doesn't happen people you know we should tend to remember of hey like if i make a request of someone and they agree to it 98% of the time it's going to happen by the time they say it uh, you know that that's a, a good level of trust for the person and when you know working with engineers there there's lots of things that you could offer you know as far as management either personal development opportunities or you know making sure that you have here's a trajectory of uh, i a philosophy that i like you know when you're working with engineers is hey like it's a startup i don't expect you to work here 50 years and you know retire here just tell me like two jobs from now where do you want to be and like regardless of whether i'm your manager or not like how do i make sure that we help you get there um, so i think that that is usually a thing that that helps people you know especially when you're you're proactive about it can can be useful you mentioned level managing up and this is a, a concept that i actually just only recently have heard of and as someone who doesn't manage anyone under me uh, managing up is the only way to go so First, how would you explain that concept and how can someone like me do it better? Okay. I guess there's a few different layers of like a, a individual contributor can manage up for their employee manager and then employee manager, sorry, engineering manager can manage up to either the CTO or the CEO, stuff like that. How that essentially would work is, hey, like in order for you to keep your job, not get fired and be promoted, you need to have your manager be happy or whoever makes the actual decision. Like who is the person that decides whether your job still exists or not? They need to be happy and excited at the results or the fruits of your labor. So I, I think that part of that is understanding the personal motivations of that individual and how that power might shift over time. You know, what is your man direct manager or your skip manager's relationship with the company? And, you know, how fluid is that? And making sure that whatever ends up happening with those individuals, like, okay, if they're there, that they're happy and excited with you, that, you know, you have explicit arrangements of here's the things that you were expecting of me and I over delivered on them tends to usually be a good track for a promotion. That's good to be explicit. And, but also hedging for scenarios where a person might quit or transition to a different team and making sure that you have some institutional knowledge that, hey, you, you've been continuously providing value. 
So there's the one side of making your manager happy, but then there's also the being a shield for downstream. Uh, I'll try and be PC about it, but I believe that part of being a manager is being an umbrella for uh, crap. You know, you have to, you know, catch 99 or as much as percent as you can of the bad stuff to not have the people below you be disappointed or uh, upset. You know, sometimes it's unavoidable. There's there's bad news that you have to deliver. But for the most time, if you can find ways to mitigate those changes in expectations, or you can hopefully resolve something, or you can at least make it not a surprise, I, I think can be useful. But a lot of times, especially in and even I, I can't say it's just a small company thing or a big company thing. There's there's company politics everywhere. That's just part of the game. But when you can try and reduce that amount of like any upper management politicking does not affect anyone downstream of you. If you can minimize that amount, then that would lead to hopefully some more level of comfort, which is a baseline for then trust and then feeling empowered and like you can succeed. Yeah, I like that. Not phrase, but the the general idea of yeah being an umbrella for the crap that rains down occasionally. And this is something that actually made a big impression on me with one of the managers I worked with. Where we're kind of uh, we were in this meeting, we'd miss a deadline, and uh, the team was kind of being reamed out a little by one of the higher up PMs, and uh, she started getting very aggressive. And our our manager stepped in and said, "Hey, like." this is not a respectful conversation. You shouldn't be talking to my team this way. Uh, and like, if you have concerns, this should be something that we talk about one-on-one. And that really made a big impression as to how, yeah, how good, what good management looks like, especially during those uh, harder conversations, so we say. And then, it's not directly related to uh, what we've just been talking about, but something that, Actually, I don't know who said it, but the you were talking about keeping the person who makes your job, who determines the outcome of whether you keep your job. And uh, a phrase I've heard is, your freedom is inversely proportionate to the number of people that have control over your job at any given point. And then to, and this is a pivot towards talking more about your consulting and startup adventures. Uh, another quote I'll just throw out there because I really love it is Nassim Taleb's, the three most dangerous addictions are heroin, sugar, and a monthly paycheck. <laughs> so <laughs> can you talk a little bit about the transition from go, just being an individual contributor and into at a company you work with someone else into uh, what you do, which is, or... Yeah, 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 what you do, which is consulting for various startups uh, and stuff like that. Yeah, so I guess when I think of my beliefs or my, my core values, a thing I value highly is liberty. And part of that is flexibility, both on time and, you know, where I am when I do things. You know, for me... I like working in results only work environments. Some people call them row for short, where, hey, like if I you know, work from midnight to 5 a.m., don't care. Like I'm on time, I'm early, the features are great, they don't break. That's really kind of all you can ask for. 
<laughs> you know, for me, I think that having that flexibility of saying, hey, like you can suggest or tell me what to do, but just not when gives me the availability to balance a bunch of different projects or a bunch of different companies where I say, say, hey, okay, if I at least own my schedule and not one place is a specific nine to five, then as different things become very urgent or very important, I can reshift my time, which is both like very great from supporting the individual needs of any individual client, but also, you know, for anything in your personal life that you would like to do as well, you know, it gives you a lot of flexibility to say, you know, when you do things, which I think are important. Yeah, I think a lot of companies now that we're in COVID times are realizing that they don't necessarily need to have employees clocking into the office at a certain time and then clocking out again. Maybe giving that freedom actually does lead to both better work outcomes uh, stemming from possibly more balanced personal lives from having more that freedom that, like you said, you value so much. So if you were a someone at a company who is thinking about trying their hand at consulting, how would you, well, one, how would you recommend that they figure out if it's even right for them? And how would you recommend that they start transitioning to that? So I'm assuming we're talking the scope of software engineering. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so from that, I would say there tends to be a lot of companies that would look for part-time or temp contracts. Some of them even advertise on LinkedIn. Where I think for a person getting into something, it is easy enough to just apply to a bunch of part-time jobs, which could be like a bunch of long-term things. And from that, you can have supplemental income such that you can then, okay, if you have two or three different part-time gigs that you're working, then you just quit your full-time and now you can work at any different hour that you want. Now, of course, some part-time places might still have an hourly range of when you have to be working, which again, you know, people decide what kind of work environments that they want to be in. But if you go that route, that could be easy for someone already with uh, you know, a full-time job and they're just trying to find replacement. Outside of that, there are you know, always just a bunch of different companies that from your friends of friends, you know, you would be able to find a colleague that, hey, yeah, they need some help with something and you can just offer to help and find an arrangement where like realistically speaking, any product development, like there is a cost that is uh, worth, you know, because you're paying someone to do it either way. So you say, hey, like someone has a headache you know, there's some pain, how do I just make that problem disappear for them? And what is a reasonable price for that? And if you have a you know a network that you can ping, great. If not, like there's a lot of job boards, a thing that I would probably advise against, or just as a recommendation, a word of caution, there are a lot of different consulting websites where they have like $100 gigs or, you know, a few hundred dollars for like very small things. And at least in my personal experience and other people that I've worked with, it is a lot better to have a short list of like very reliable long-term clients over, you know, here's a, a small, you know, few thousand dollars here and, you know, back to back to back because there's so much logistical overhead that 
with searching, sourcing, vetting clients, making sure that you know their demands aren't ridiculous and that they can actually pay. Because unfortunately, some clients they think they can pay, but then they realize that they actually can't. Uh, so it's good to to make sure they weed those ones out. But yeah, so there would be that. So if you can land a few short, like a short list of long term clients, I think that's important. And as far as a methodology I would use for filtering out people. I think maybe someone started off as a joke, but I take it pretty seriously of um, imagine you have a little triangle of you can have it fast, you can have it cheap, or you can have it good. You only get to pick two. And anyone that says I want it cheap, sorry, you're just not my kind of client. Like that, that does, that's not how I operate. That's not how I want to operate. So some people, you know, engineers or, you know, design people, they might have their own preference of philosophy. And I think that is important of, Hey, like when you build a network, like find companies that want that in alignment with you. And anytime you find either a different consultant or a company that doesn't have that same preference as you, now you have an opportunity to refer and create goodwill for other people, right? So if you know someone that has a different preference style, then okay, you know, you refer that client to, you know, a good friend that's reliable and will, you know, work well with them. And, you know, that kind of, Builds a symbiosis of, of people referring around. Yeah, and it builds a lot of goodwill. They, they, you're not just take, take, take. You're you're saying, okay, like it's not for me, but uh, I know this great person who is more in line with your values. That will build a lot of goodwill. Maybe the company will, maybe someone goes to them and says, oh yeah, hey, I want this, and they'll say, oh, Devin, he's the guy who referred me to this great consultant, and he seems to be a good guy, willing to take on this type of work. And the that trichotomy of fast, cheap, or or good, is it? I think I'm pretty fairly sure that that comes from, there was a NASA logo, maybe. And then oh, I was in the, one of their hallways where it had like, the th- these are their three goals. And then overnight after they put that up, I think some engineer, some enterprising engineer took some spray paint and underneath it put pick two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if someone, let's say they've, they have a good network that they can tap and they have, they filtered out maybe one or two clients that uh, they're willing to take on that can pay. What do you think is the most common reasons that people will fail or give up? As a consultant, I think a lot of people that focus on having a lot of short engagements burn out just because they underestimate how much overhead logistically it will be. Uh, I think that's probably the the primary driver. Outside of that, I, I think some reasons people might fail is I, I would much rather okay. Imagine people say the 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 eighty rule or eighty twenty rule, right? So it's like twenty percent of your customers will give you eighty percent of your revenue. That's true. You know, it's also true. Twenty percent of your customers will give you eighty percent of the headache. So making sure that those ones that are annoying you you stop working with them Uh, or you, if anything, create a fee structure such that it is then worth it. There are some people that I have found too high maintenance where I decided, okay, I will either stop working with this person or because I I just, it's not good for my mental or emotional health. And there are given ultimatum and saying, Hey, like, here's my pricing. Now, I guess I, I should have a correction there of, don't phrase it as an ultimatum, but more of like, hey, like here is the price and you work in like whatever that extra annoying level is 
that makes it financially worth it for you at the time. Factor that in, add you know fifty percent margin, and, or maybe even double it. And if they accept it, cool, fine. Like that, that's the price you pay. And if they don't, great. You don't have to deal with headache. If you can really vet out people that are going to be problematic clients, I think that that ends up being important because um, you'll spend way more time dealing with them. Ways to avoid that, I usually think of if you can break your deliverables into an explicit list of like what is in scope, but also explicitly say what is out of scope. Because a lot of clients will always want, you know, to creep in extra things. And if you can avoid uh, that by saying, hey, here's definitely things that are out of scope, great. If you can break down your payment into milestones. uh, So imagine if you have a $100,000 contract and you can break it down into 10, $10,000 installments. A lot of people are way more comfortable, you know, at the end of the contract, they just view it as, oh, here's another 10,000, no big deal, whatever. They're very quick to write that check. But if let's say you did 40 up front and 60 at back, they're going to have some hesitation for writing that big $60,000 check. And they're go, mm, well, maybe this button could be blue instead of red. And they're going to backpedal and make all these excuses of extra things that they want just because they're afraid of giving away so much money. Uh, so when you uh, create that kind of smaller streamlined process, that makes people a bit more easy to, to pay. And then lastly, I'd say a word of caution. If you are consulting for academics, make sure you know what source they will be getting their payment from. If they're using grants, make sure that they have already been approved and have received the grants. There are plenty of times in which an academic might assume that they will get a grant or they might misinterpret the rules and think, and this has literally happened. I've had a client that thought they could get the same grant five times <laughs> and then give you all that money. It's like, no, you definitely can't get one grant five times over. And the university was like, obviously, this is nonsensical. So you just kind of have to eat the cost and you know write it as a you know loss. But so I think that that's important. <laughs> and then also, I guess, uh, as far as billing for your time, I know for some reason, a lot of engineers have difficulties estimating how much time something will take. But I think it is very important of not only for a whole contract, but if like feature by feature, like or pieces of functionality, you can break down what your hourly estimate is you think to build that thing. No matter how accurate you are, that's fine. But if you can figure out any patterns over time of you consistently underestimate by 50% or you know 30% or whatever, that's fine. Like you can just have a multiple adjustment. That's okay. But I feel like it's just very important for you to further iterate and keep getting uh, continuous knowledge of how accurate your assessments are for time. Because it's going to be the two projects that took you 10 times longer than you thought it would be that are going to sink you. The better your assessment you can have on that will, will really uh, avoid a lot of headache. Wow, that's a really fantastic and detailed answer that is, will be extremely helpful to anyone listening who's uh, thinking about doing something like this. And the point, the last point about about estimating your time, yeah, this is something that is still a definitely a struggle for a lot of people. And I know that I recently, or not not so recently, maybe a few years ago, started, I guess, defining all of my work in the atomic unit of a Pomodoro, which is uh, thirty minutes. 
so I can pretty easily keep track of how long things take. And I was astounded at how bad my estimations were at that time. I mean, they were on the, it was like two and a half, it would take two and a half X average, the amount of time that I originally scoped. Now that's much less, maybe it's between like 30 and 60% right now, but yeah, it's definitely a continually difficult problem. Yeah. So I agree of, you know, what doesn't get measured can't really be improved directly. So just trying to be cognitively aware of something and measure it will inherently make you more accurate over time because you know, you know how you sway. Yeah, definitely. So I know that you've been working a lot recently with some healthcare startups. How did you, so is that a field that you sought out to be in? Uh, and if so, why? I will say mostly accidental. The first few clients that I was working with at a college uh, or university, they happen to be healthcare. And from that, they kept recommending other people. So it's it's interesting when you think of, hey, like a network effect, any person you work with in, within a specific industry knows more people within that specific industry. So one, you're building up, you know, your skill set and your knowledge in a particular domain, for example, healthcare, which is useful and, you know, creates more value prop for you to work in healthcare. But a lot of other people, you know, just happens to be when you get references from a former or current clients, uh, they just, that's who they know uh, from their proximity. Now, I would say a thing that probably has kept me closer to it than pure random chance specifically was, I guess, an experience I had at a AI healthcare firm working in radiology where the further I worked at that company, the more I realized healthcare is broken. And originally, like going into it, I was like, oh, yeah, like I have a lot of faith in you know hospitals and doctors and the healthcare system at large. Like they're smart people, like they're very educated. They work hard. They got it all figured out uh, for the most part. Uh, of course, there's problems here and there, but, you know, who doesn't? And the more and more I worked on it, I just saw these like glaring holes of a, a lot of both inefficiencies, but also things that are affecting patients' outcomes, which is scary. And I think part of that fear made me interested in reading a lot more of these specific occurrences of, okay, like what are these trends and procedures of care or design of healthcare policy that lead to a lot of these like statistical results? And then from that, okay, reverse engineering, here's these different products and people doing things that are, they say they're tackling it, but they're just going to get stuck in bureaucracy versus, oh, they're actually solving not just a symptom resulting from a, a design flaw, but the actual like disease of the design flaw. To make it a little bit more concrete, I guess, what is the say, one to three biggest issues that you think can be resolved with technology in the healthcare space? I guess there's a, a few different areas in, in, in healthcare to discuss. I think, if anything, the, the first being reliable communications and having patients actually own data. So there are a lot of times where people will, you know, their primary care, someone simply doesn't know something about their condition that's very important. For a specific example, 
I know plenty of people and also some examples where someone was given uh, diff- conflicting medications. Like they were simultaneously prescribed coagulants and blood thinners, which will put you in hospital for a while. It's very bad, dangerous. And they're like, each of those medications purposes the exact opposite of the other. There's a lot of lack of that communication. And there's this ongoing joke of like any healthcare startup will essentially become like a healthcare, like communications startup doing transmissions between different facilities. Because frankly, a lot of these places are just sending fax machines back and forth. Sorry, they're sending faxes back and forth. And a lot of it is like, you know, human error of interpreting things. Also, just a lot of times information never gets shared. So that that being problematic. Secondly, I think that fake prices, the, the charge master of people saying, hey, like, just because 50 years ago, hospitals wanted to make insurance companies feel like they were doing a good job. So we made prices artificially high to give them a discount to say, oh, like, congratulations, you got a 70% discount. And now anyone without insurance is paying these actually fake prices is, it's not technically insane, but it's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) So I think if anything, like having uh, more rapid access to the exact pricing of these things and actually not only just being transparent about that pricing, but also making sure places are accountable for that. I guess some some examples that would come to mind. Right now, hospitals, there's been some legislation that would require hospitals to list prices for different procedures, but is very buried and put in a language that is like totally non-comprehensible for the average consumer. And if you are patient, you're not going to be able to like find all these hidden links and then go to these PDFs that are 100 page long, find these prices and then combine all these prices together. Like we need to know how much something is actually going to cost and then, you know, to to appropriately choose care and then have, you know, a place fix it and, and hold them accountable to, to that price. And uh, an example of this is interesting for medical evacuations. You know, let's say you have you're you're in a remote location, you need a hospital, you needed a helicopter to bring you to a hospital. The overcharge of that is so high that when someone calls in an emergency, you can have five to 10 helicopters show up. What? Yeah. So instead of just having one helicopter show up, five show up and they're like, here's my pricing, come get in this helicopter. And some are, you know, 50 times more expensive than the other. And the reason why they're able to do that is because if you're a very expensive helicopter transport service, imagine you're the first person on the scene. Maybe you're the first person on the scene 2% of the time. And 2% of the time, someone doesn't know better or they don't know to ask. So they just get in your helicopter. Now they're stuck with a ridiculous bill. And maybe if you're only the first three of the 10 helicopters or whatever, now you're only really competing with the prices of the other two that showed up before you. So there's just like this weird, like, they're so incentivized to to have ridiculously high prices that they say, okay, yeah, I'm fine if I fly to 50 different locations, and I only pick up one patient because our margins are so ridiculous. Um, Now, if there is some coordination of that, where we say, okay, like, we will have a distribution or an allocation system, then people would actually be able to, you know, pick a thing that is cost effective, and there would be less waste. So that's just on the cost side. And I think that all that things that uh, that applies to transparency of cost also apply to 
transparency of care. So for instance, if you're getting a surgery or you are getting your x-ray interpreted by someone, I fundamentally believe that you should know the performance history of that physician, like Mm -hmm. saying, hey, you know, if you diagnose brain tumors, are you right 90% of the time, 50% of the time? I think that some things are hard to gauge, like some things are, you know, a bit less easy to, to clearly diagnose, like black and white. But that said, for even those conditions, there's a wide range of quality of doctors. And you have no idea whether you're dealing with someone in the upper quartile or the bottom quartile. And I think that it is willful ignorance of the industry to perpetuate not letting anyone know the quality of care that they are providing. And they like the public is just at large accepting that because I guess they don't really know anything different or that they could have access to that if they push hard enough. Wow, that yeah, that information asymmetry is something that I've never really thought of, but you're totally right that it just leads to such adverse outcomes if you don't actually know the the quality of your physician. Uh, it, it reminds me a bit of the joke of what do you call a a doctor or what do you call someone at the bottom of their class of their class in medical school? A doctor. <laughs> so you, you just don't know what uh, what kind of what the quality of care you're getting, and there's really not really not a way to figure it out. Uh, I don't know if a lot of this stuff is constrained under HIPAA. I I think it's for patients only. I don't know what the laws are on uh, show displaying information for doctors. But wow, that's a really that's really interesting to think about. And also, I will clarify. I believe HIPAA tends to be a bit misunderstood when people you know think of, hey, what is you know HIPAA, right? And they say we want to protect your data from being spread across, like from any different facility, right? And the, the P in HIPAA isn't actually protection. It is the Health Insurance Portability Accountability Act. So HIPAA was actually invented as a standard to allow facilities to easily and securely transmit information. So like people are realizing is, hey, like all these hospitals are siloed. They don't have uh, shared infrastructure. They can't talk to each other. We need a way to actually send information from one place to another. Let's make a rule that enables and allows people to share that. HIPAA was actually made to make it easier to send healthcare information. Now, of course, there are some you know safety rails, but people act like it is this you know horrible, like crazy bad thing. Where like no, it, like it can be misinterpreted in certain ways, but like it is used to actually make sharing information convenient. Because before that, there just wasn't any. <laughs> That's fascinating too. They need uh, HIPAA. Whoever made that re- regulation needs a. Uh better PR person to get the word out. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I would say there is, uh, a, an ex- I can't say excessive, but there is a lot of regulation. Healthcare makes it a lot harder in a lot of other industries. Mm-hmm. And so can you explain a little bit about uh, what you're currently working on and uh, how that can maybe connect to what are the problems that you see? Sure. So as far as the transparency of care, a uh, thing that I, I would be directly working on is the uh, teleradiology service where we are not judging doctors by their credentials, but by their performance history. And, you know, we say, hey, like if I have liver cancer, I don't want someone that just went to Harvard. I want someone that is an expert at liver cancer. So being able to have that better matchmaking for 
conditions that we can get you know reliable historical performance on and providing not only assessments for radiologists to provide accurate care but also providing educational resources such that hey if i have a hundred different radiologists from all around the world discuss a case and in the course of them discussing it that someone changed their mind that is a very critical golden nugget of wisdom that if you can aggregate and share those golden nuggets to a bunch of different physicians around the world they will like learn hey like this is actually how like i i should differentiate something and you know that that can provide better care that and i think you know as more and more things are coming online, of course, you know, I, I think that's a great trend. I, I think right now, unfortunately, if you look at the statistics in history, patient outcomes are determined by zip code. And it's very sad that where you live determines what quality of care that you receive. Healthcare tourism is a thing. People fly to different countries because they can get a better doctor. And I think that, you know, totally valid. People are trying to do what's best for them. I think that's important. I think as we are in the internet era, we can increase access, at least for diagnostic purposes. You know, it's hard to have surgery and someone doing a procedure like on your body physically if if they can't be there uh, until robot surgery is a thing. (laughs) But, you know, until then, I think it's just very important for us to have that transparency and and accountability at, at facilities because, if a lot of firms just say, hey, just trust us, how are you supposed to know whether they're better, like one, if they're good at all, but two, if they're better than your other options, right? Because if they're charging three times as much, does it actually mean they're three times better? Like they might even be worse than the cheaper option, but you have no idea because they don't expose those transparency like performance metrics. So I think having a, uh, a direct consumer and working with health insurance companies to provide more reliable and authentic diagnostic reporting. Yeah, I really like that. The part about having the end outcome being able to be distributed, back propagated, if you will, into the minds of the people who were involved in making that decision. It's yeah, quite amazing because right now, if you go to someone and you don't really like what they're saying, or you think that they're wrong, then you go to someone else and on and on. And those doctors that you didn't go with never actually know what happened, which seems to be a significantly significant issue, to say the least. Yeah. And a lot of people that think of this, they they believe that uh, machine learning will solve all these problems. And to some extent, in certain acute conditions, if you have the appropriate data set, you know, machine learning can be useful. But that said, I've seen and works with a lot of these different, you know, AI I, providers. And when they devolve down into letting the human decide what is and isn't accurate. Okay, you know, that's fine. But now do we know of the person determining that? Where are they in the upper quartile or the bottom quartile? So both from your your cleanliness of your data, but also at the actual operations and what is affecting a patient at a facility, until we have actual knowledge about this granular performance of all these different physicians, then you know, you're, you're, you're kind of operating to an extent blind or at least blurred, both in a regular practice and a AI-enabled practice as well. Yeah. Interesting. Very, yeah, there's, there, like you said at the, at the beginning of, of this thread, it's, there really are so many 
things wrong in the healthcare system. Not not to say that it's completely ineffective, but obviously you know, there do definitely seem to be a lot of things related to how it can be done better. But to zoom out a little bit more into startups as a whole, mm-hmm. are there other sectors that you're keeping up with that you think are mega trends in progress that are just waiting to achieve escape velocity? Mm-hmm. So I think there are a lot of different things that are pretty exciting. I'm very excited about stage four nuclear. Uh, I know it can be a little bit exactly. out, yep, but yep. Uh, the data has like come in on renewables. We unfortunately, keep shutting down nuclear. You know, that, that needs to be better. Um, I'm so, assuming that you saw the uh, new scale approval. I'm not from a specific what you're referencing. Oh, they uh, just two weeks ago, the uh, whatever the board that regulates nuclear reactors there's a startup called New Scale Energy who does small, it, it's not Gen 4, but it's a Gen 3 and a half. I, I don't know, the gen, the gen is weird, but they have small modular reactors where with uh, passive safety features. The idea is that you have between one and like, I don't know, up to 50 of these in a single facility. If one of them fails, it doesn't like cause a chain reaction with the rest of them. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, yeah much safer and uh, that recently got approved. So they can uh, start to build the first one of them. Very exciting. Yeah, it's uh, been interesting seeing all the different ways people are trying to tackle this. Um, But I think to an extent, we need to hopefully change public sentiment because a lot of what's been holding us back is an irrational fear. And if anything, like manufactured fear from the media, which we all have incentives but I think that, you know, that's that's been more of a challenge than some of the, the technical pieces. But yeah, so hopefully we'll see a lot of progress in that. Other things I think are, are very great biotech. I like the idea of, hey, like we have written code for computers. We need to write code for cells. Like, and then there's a lot of different parts to that, both of the interpretation of how cells operate, how we are actually like doing, you know, genetic modifications and, you know, CRISPR and such. And then, of course, there's the, you know, the short hacks where we're not really doing too much genetic things, but we are finding a a unique way to use biology as a, to, to, to rapidly solve a problem where, you know, we say, hey, like, we'll, we'll culture meat and we'll, like, you know, just have proteins that grow. Or some startups, even they are growing blood in petri dishes to resolve like donations and there are some areas where we can have like a medium level of understanding and like solve significant problems but even if we get that that deeper understanding of actually programming cells that uh, will just lead to a whole bunch of very interesting results yeah i I can still remember playing the game deus deus ex in human revolution in high school which uh, of course is a dystopian view of of the potential for biotech gone wrong, but no, I, I it just struck me while I was playing that that if, if this technology actually did work, it would basically be the greatest thing ever, short of like a, an artificial friendly AGI. Do you know enough about the field to speculate on uh, any sort of timelines for when we can start to write code? So there are a few different problems that are broken down on this. So. People have been able to print uh, DNA of, of small chains. Could probably say 10 years from out, we might have a ability to 
imagine you can download the DNA of, of a cell. You can then transmit it to some place and then print it, which is very useful for viral research, trying to do rapid response. That's, of course, an area that's very important. I think that when we look at the, the double-edged sword of, hey, as this technology becomes more easier, it can be an existential threat of people doing bioengineering for you know, weapons, whether that ends up being a nation state or just someone in their basement because now we make 3D printers for DNA. There's, there's of course, different consequences of that. I believe that there will be a whole bunch of innovation that we see just from the modification of DNA and just like the, I'll try and avoid some technical jargon here, but the moving of genetic information in and out of existing cells. So that will solve a lot of problems in itself. But from that, there is a second step of actually manufacturing entire cells and doing modifications on that level, which would be a, a lot more far out and also have a lot more unintended consequences or side effects that would make experimentation hard. Yeah, yeah, of course. And it's it's easy to get, get caught up, uh, especially in the age of uh, social media and especially with the election coming up, all of the, everyone's throwing shade at everyone else. But uh, when you look at the technology, the future does seem to be the most interesting time <laughs> to live in. Yeah, when we try and contrast this media view that cares about clicks and ad revenue to drive sensationalism versus people having a sentiment, oh, the, the world's getting worse, so the world is bad, versus we actually look at the trends. I love to think of Steven Pinker and all of his phenomenal examples of like, in almost every way you could fathom, the world is like getting better every decade. <laughs> and so it's just interesting to see, you know, in some of his books and in some of his lectures of, of, yes, the world is measurably better in a lot of ways. And it's unfortunate that there's this very distinct and large gap between the statistical patterns and these one-off empirical or anecdotal examples, just because I feel like a lot of movements, people can resonate with a face or just feeling one example that, you know, that's concrete, that hits more home than hearing a statistic. Unfortunately, I think that's one of the things that drives the divide, but I'm sure also, unless we find other ways to communicate information in media that incentivizes either wisdom or just authenticity versus sensationalism, that business model will continue to contribute to that divide. Yeah, that media sensationalism, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about the public sentiment on uh, nuclear power, where if you, similar to the public sentiment on airplane crashes, where airplanes are orders of magnitude safer than cars are, but yet the number of deaths featured on TV and in the news by transportation type is overwhelmingly from plane crashes, so it doesn't match up there. And similarly, with nuclear reactors, I think many people would be surprised to know that in terms of injuries, deaths per kilowatt hour generated, nuclear is also multiple orders of magnitude safer than especially, I mean, what are the, the other methods are, of course, the renewables, but those have their own problems too. The materials are hard to get for solar, where with dams that causes all sorts of environmental damage later down, down the line after the dam. 
and wind power also causes some environmental factors as well as being you have the general risks of people having to maintain things that are that far up but not to enumerate every single point on each specific one but the one one last one though coal is still the majority of the electricity generated in at least the US although i think that may have ticked down below the 50% mark now and there that is an extremely extremely dangerous profession to be a coal miner or someone working inside of a coal firing electricity generating plant so if the listeners haven't looked into any statistics regarding nuclear power they they really should and not just look into it but also try and message their local politicians and try and change their minds about it because if we have any hope of moving away from carbon emitting electricity sources it's going to be nuclear couldn't agree more (laughs) to start to wrap this up let's go into some of the rapid fire questions which your answer doesn't have to be rapid but uh, just the questions themselves are very short that i try and ask everyone although i am still tweaking some of these so we'll see how they go but the first one if you could time travel back to when you first started programming what advice would you give yourself i think better being able to compartmentalize and whenever feeling like you're trying to debug or build a feature if you're if you feel like you're getting lost or like fuzzy on your thinking just really pause and like reevaluate like this is the end goal and then figure out there might be a different path because i think there's a lot of times we get debug and you you're just like one bug leads to another and it just becomes like a devops or like a crazy low level thing so when you reevaluate the high level goal often you can just find an alternative solution that then just makes all of your previous problems irrelevant which is useful and that i would say for the the business of both contracting, but also full-time work, making sure to get a lot of things in writing and being pretty persistent at standing up for yourself. Because in your workplace uh, at a company or as a consultant, like very rarely will you find a person that is going to be an evangelist for you and stand up for what you want. So making sure that if people like are promising comp or other things, even if they can't necessarily deliver on it right now, just having those both expectations and deliverables and any adjustments like written down somewhere because whether or not you know maybe they have bad intentions that are trying to mislead you okay it's good to avoid that but also maybe uh, through no fault of their own your manager gets replaced with someone else because they transition out of the company now you can communicate with your existing your new manager and saying hey like i had these expectations like i was on a track i was on all progress with with things with my previous manager just because you come in, I feel like I shouldn't have to be reset to zero. I think that that will build some some sympathy and like keep your momentum in your career up. Yeah, that's super important. And it doesn't really, it doesn't take that much time as well. I mean, I would consider myself to be someone who takes an overabundance of documentation in terms of anytime you get a compliment, you try and uh, have them slack it to you so that you can have some record of it or writing down, taking notes during one-on-ones with everyone, et cetera. Uh, and yeah, it doesn't really take up much maintenance time, maybe like 15 minutes a week. And you're pretty much insured for if something like that happens, like you said. So next is, 
how do you recharge outside of work? So two kinds of recharging. One, social gatherings with board games and having philosophical discussions with friends. That's like a kind of recharge. The other, if I've just had too much talking with other people, really just spend quiet time either like reflecting. I think that like very rarely is there a time where like too much self-reflection ends up revealing. It's like, oh, you know, that that was a a big waste of time. So I think that often that can short circuit a, a lot of goals, which is useful. And then outside of that, I think occasionally there's an instance where if you can find any relaxing like video games that are just allow you to be in the flow state where you feel like, okay, like you're, you're cognitively relaxed and you're having fun. Sometimes you can even like have frustration that is fun uh, and enjoyable. You know, that can be cathartic. So uh, I think the balance of probably those three. To dive into a little bit more of that, that self-reflection, what does that look like for you? Are you writing in a journal or a list of questions you think about? Yeah, I guess there's a few different formats. I have you know, hundreds of different documents of different categories. Um, <laughs> but so I think there's, of course, you know, your, your quarterly goals and you know, how, you, how you break that down into either your, your weeklies or your dailies. But even outside of goals, I think that is important just to reflect on, hey, like, what do you feel when and why? And then you can more like cherish the good things, figure out what to fix about the bad things. And there's a bunch of internal things to resolve. And then outside of that, there's also, hey, like, what is your belief about the world or a trend in industry? And that can think about you know, your experience with that. And maybe that leads to a product idea or something. But uh, and there's a lot of things about just different kinds of actions that, that you should take. So uh, a common check that I like to ask is, what is something that I should have told someone, but I, for whatever reason, didn't? And who, who have I not told that the longest to? You know, whether it ends up being like an unpleasant, hard conversation, or maybe there's someone you really admire that you want to say something positive to them, but you're too shy to say it. Um, you don't want to be vulnerable. And I think that both of those things are good to resolve uh, and usually end up having a better outcome when you speak your truth versus not. So I think there's a bunch of different things about like goals, actions, your beliefs on things, why you think something might be right or wrong, or how did some environment lead to you feeling a, a specific emotion and why. Uh, I think it ends up uh, helping build insights of how you might further change your interactions uh, with things in the future. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to stay on this a little bit more because it's something that I'm still trying to figure out is do you schedule specific times to think about things or do you just you see a free block on your calendar and you say, oh, okay, I guess I'll, I'll just think about these, these things. So mix of both. I think for goal setting, part of accountability is like, accountability over time. So making sure that that's time boxed is usually good. Also, I think that setting a schedule, it is good to have a end time in mind such that like the having a limited amount of time forces you to make, you know, the best of decisions that you can at the time versus think about something indefinitely, uh, which will sometimes be a waste. So sandboxing to some extent is good. I feel so for, for goal-oriented stuff, I would say schedule. I would also do amount of ad hoc, and I usually think that is more of um, 
like emotional recharge or you know that that kind of reflection where if for whatever reason you're you're not feeling motivated or you're somehow irrationally uh angry or happy about something it is you know you get curious to understand why and i think bringing yourself back to a neutral state to then reevaluate could resolve a lot of the concern that that you would have at that time mm-hmm. okay yeah that's really that's really helpful actually um it's something that i'm trying to it feels weird to say optimize this this part of my life but i guess that would be what i'm trying to do and to move on to the next one what book or books do you most often recommend to other people? Could be technical or non-technical. So I think if anything, regardless of profession, communication is very important. And from that, things to come to mind are Never Split the Difference, a uh, great book on negotiating, and then Radical Candor. I think that can help both with individual reflection, but also how you decide to interact with other people in a a respectable but authentic way, which, which is useful. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check. I've read, I've never felt the difference, but uh, Radical Candor, I've heard a lot about, but uh, we'll have to check that one out. The next is how big of an existential risk is AGI? Uh, over what time span? Uh, well, it's existential, so. Okay, forever. Any time span. I mean, I, I would have to say, like, over an infinite time span, pretty high. Because I guess there's there's two orders of this. So firstly is, okay, we just say there's you know, some robots that would, I guess, replace consciousness of, of humans, right? So humans end. Like one, that's very bad. The second order effect in which I hear less people discuss, which I find slightly even more fascinating, is let's say we have the robot uprising and then they kill all humans. Okay, that's unfortunate. But even worse than that is if they create a multi-planetary species, or I guess we have multi-planetary robots, then they can go galaxy to galaxy and kill all life. Um, And they will then have enough resources and power such that no life would ever be able to meet a meaningful threshold to survive. So that would actually be the end of all consciousness, not just humans, which I find far scarier. Interesting. Yeah, taking it to that multi, multi-galactic extreme certainly leads to some unintended consequences, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. So lastly, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? It's probably the belief that conflict is bad. I think that in people's day-to-day lives and their work, for some reason they view uncomfortable conversations or misunderstandings as inherently bad or evil or a thing that shouldn't be experienced. And I believe that I would rather have a temporary unpleasantness and you know perpetual like positive outcome versus dealing with resentment or something negative forever. It's things that don't get communicated often probably only get worse and then blow up over time. If you have a disagreement with someone or even in an argument per se, having a different opinion or a different perspective on something like isn't necessarily bad. Like it, it would be unreasonable to expect everyone to have the same exact opinion about something all the time. 
part of just the the experience of life is okay you bump into people with different lived experiences and opinions on stuff and okay like how do you make a resolution on that like we both respect each other we both admire each other like we have different opinions that's fine let's figure out how to talk about that now i I think it is uh, just people being like too afraid of putting too much weight on having that unpleasant conversation which ends up being bad I guess if I if I had to try and compartmentalize this, I'd describe. So you know how we have this issue of short-term gratification over long-term fulfillment. I think it is the exact same thing, but for negative stuff. So we drastically overvalue the short-term uncomfortableness over the long-term negative effect. So just we hypersensitize to short-term things. And I don't remember who said it, but there is some phrase of in any type of negotiation, the person who is willing to be the least comfortable usually wins the negotiation. If you're willing to be respectful, work through stuff and endure whatever unpleasantries, you'll probably like actually find some light at the end of the tunnel and and have at least some level of progress or a better outcome. Yeah, that's a really, really great response. And I can't really think of a a better way than to end it there. So if people want to find you online, do you have a a website? I think probably the best way is LinkedIn. All right, yeah, I'll uh, just link that in the show notes below. So thank you so much, Devin, for coming onto the show. This was a really, really excellent conversation. Of course, appreciate the time. It was fun chatting with you. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Thank you.